Well, the Gospel of John, part two, and um, we're in chapter eight, and uh, the the place we've actually come to is um, remember most of John's Gospel homes in on the latter part of the ministry of Jesus, and we're in the four months leading up to the crucifixion, and. Uh, we're in what's known as the later Judean Amprian ministry, i.e. Jesus is down south, Jerusalem, Judea area, and also he's zapping over to Perea, which was the region across the River Jordan to the east, where the Transjordan tribes had settled uh, at the time of Joshua. So that's, that's the kind of the, the, the area that we're in now. So Jesus is back down south, and uh, basically that's where he stays from now on. And um, in, in chapter 8, Jesus has brought to him a woman who had been caught committing adultery. Now, the important thing about this particular little story is that it's the only recorded incident we have in the Gospels, as far as I can find, where the teachers of the law and the Pharisees challenge Jesus on the basis of the Mosaic law rather than merely the tradition of the elders. The clashes between Jesus and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were, were always to do not with the Old Testament but to do with the tradition of the elders, all the teachings that they had that they'd added to the law. And this is the only instance where they challenge Jesus on the basis of the Old Testament, and indeed on the, you know, the one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. And, uh, but of course, the one thing that we must say, because I mean, they come and they say, look, she's been caught in adultery, and, you know, sort of like what, you know, sort of like, you know, we must stone her, mustn't we? And uh, which, of course, is what the law prescribed in the Old Testament. But of course we must see immediately that uh, it takes two to tango, if indeed you want to call committing adultery tango. And they just bring the woman. Well where's the bloke? You can't catch one person committing adultery. The bloke's not here. They've just brought the woman. And of course the point is, it's a setup. This is nothing to do with a genuine concern for justice. You know, I mean to them, you know, women were often chattels, so they let the bloke go. They just bring the woman, and it's it's, it's kind of a setup. There's no justice in their thinking at all, and uh, so they're saying, you know, well, according to the law, we're we're supposed to, you know, to kind of stone her, aren't we, Jesus? And uh, and John tells us that that Jesus, sort of like, he he crouched down on the ground, and he wrote with his finger, in the sand. Now. There's loads of speculation as to what he wrote. John doesn't tell us. But I put it to you that here we have the one occasion that the Pharisees are challenging him on the basis of the Ten Commandments or the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, were written on tablets of stone with the finger of God. Jesus is crouching down on the ground and he's writing on the ground with his finger. And I'm just sure he's writing, thou shalt not commit adultery. And of course what he's saying is, hey guy, I wrote this law, and you're going to try and trip me up on it? Okay, go ahead. And he stands up, 
And what he says to them is quite simply, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Because, of course, the point is that if someone was to be stoned to death, the witnesses to their crime were the ones who had to throw the stone first. They had to actually start the capital punishment off. They had to begin the stoning. Now, of course, this doesn't mean, as some people try and make it mean, that Jesus is saying, uh, you know, you should never, ever, ever tell anyone they're wrong because, of course, we're all sinners. And that's not what he's saying at all. All this rubbish about you should never correct people, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. That's not what it is at all. But when Jesus says that to them, one by one, they kind of vanish. Uh, and it says the youngest last. And the point is, in order to be a witness against somebody, you need to be free of the crime that you're witnessing against them for. And all these guys vanish because Jesus knows, and it's a word of knowledge, that they've all committed adultery as well. And so when Jesus looks them in the eye and says, okay, right, those of you who haven't done what she's done, you can throw the first stone. And he's looking at them and one by one they vanish. Because the point was, they were trying to use the law, and the law represents holiness and justice. They were trying to use the law for purposes other than righteousness and holiness and justice. They were just trying to catch Jesus out. And of course, what they were trying to do is, they were saying to Jesus, look, she's committed adultery, under the law she ought to be stoned. Isn't that right, Jesus? She ought to be put to death. Now the point is, Rome because it was occupying Judea at the time, occupying Israel, they withdrew the right of capital punishment to the authorities of the countries they occupied. So any capital punishment had to be done by Rome. So although the Jewish law prescribed the death penalty for certain sins and certain crimes, the point is the occupying forces of Rome had withdrawn their right to put anyone to death. And so what they were trying to do, had Jesus said, um, yes, let's stone her, that's quite right, they could have gone away and ratted on him to the Romans and saying, look, we've, we've got someone here who's advocating that we go against your laws. But had Jesus said, no, you can't stone her, then they'd have tried to have Jesus on the basis, oh, he's going against the Mosaic law. But of course, what Jesus gets them on, and it's perfect, he gets them on the basis of the quality of their witness. And he exposes them as the unjust witnesses, the hypocrites that they are. And therefore, if you like, it's a courtroom drama where the case is thrown out of court. And, and so Jesus gets round it absolutely perfectly. And then when all the accusers are gone, Jesus turns to the woman and he says, go and sin no more. So Jesus upholds righteousness and holiness, you know, to the nth degree. He certainly wasn't going soft on adultery, and he makes sure that this woman knows that having been caught once, she kind of got off lucky, as it were, and he's saying, go and sin no more. I don't, don't try it on again. And uh, obviously we don't know what happened to that woman afterwards. And then John gives us the teaching from Jesus. Um, the, the kind of, you know, the really well-known teaching, I am the light of the world. And what we'll do, we'll actually read some verses from, from this point. And um, I'm going to read from verse 12. And um, 
Let's see, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. We saw in the last talk on this, didn't we, that they tried this on before. And, and you know, I mean, Jesus kind of, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of had them on the point that the miracles that he worked and the Old Testament scriptures were witnesses to him. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law it's written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. So he says, look, I'm witnessing to myself and God the Father is. I mean, so, you know, there you are. You've got enough witness uh, that what I'm saying is true. Then they asked him, where's your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area, near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him, because his time had not yet come. They were desperately wanting to arrest him. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you'll look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? Of course, the belief is that if you killed yourself, obviously you'd be lost and you'd end up in the lake of fire. And uh, of course, what Jesus said, they're reversing it. Jesus is saying, I'm going to heaven. You can't come because you don't believe on me. And what they're saying, oh, right, if he's going somewhere we can't go, uh, oh, yeah, perhaps he's going to kill himself and go to the lake of fire. We're saved. You know, we're going to heaven kind of thing. But he continued, you're below you're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? they asked. Just what I have been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable and what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, when you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. And of course when Jesus is talking there about when you have lifted up the Son of Man, obviously he's referring to the fact that they were going to arrange to actually have him crucified. That was how they referred to it. And then read on the next two verses. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And of course, what you've got here is that the Jews are saying, 
hang on a sec, what do you mean the truth shall set us free? We don't need to be set free. We're, we're children of Abraham. We are, we've never been the slaves of anybody. Now then, there was the Egyptian captivity, the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, and now they're occupied by the Roman forces. And here they are saying, we're Jews, we've never been enslaved by anybody. Half their history was spent being enslaved because they were out of fellowship with God so much. And this is the very point Jesus is making to them. And this is, you know, the, the blindness. And, uh, and Jesus goes on to tell them straight out, he says, look, you are children of the devil. You are not children of God. Because obviously you're one or the other. If you believe in Jesus, if you're a Christian, you're a child of God. Before we were children of God, we were children of the devil. And, uh, and he tells them that they do what their father does. And Satan, we know, was a, a, a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And obviously these people, there's no truth in them at all. And also they do want to murder Jesus. Their response to this little bit of teaching is that they call him a demonized Samaritan which was a double insult we've seen haven't we that the Jews couldn't stand the Samaritans so think of the worst possible insult that you could hurl at somebody and then add that not only are they that but they're a demonized one as well I mean you've got the idea this is this is really getting quite intense now and um, Jesus goes on to tell them that whoever keeps his word will never see death to which they say, hang on a sec, if you're saying, if we keep your word, we'll never see death, uh, what about uh, Abraham? Are you saying you're greater than Abraham? Abraham died. Are you saying you're greater than Abraham, Jesus? And Jesus replied, and I'm quoting, before Abraham was, I am. Now this is burning bush stuff, isn't it? Because when God called Moses out of the burning bush, and Moses said, uh, what's your name? Who shall I say sent me? What was God's reply? Tell them I am sent you. Now this is a direct claim from Jesus to be divine. I am. Before Abraham was, so Jesus isn't just saying I was around before Abraham. That could be true if he was an angel. He's saying, no, before Abraham was. Not only did I exist before Abraham, but I existed as I am. And here he's saying, I am God. And, uh, and of course, through John's Gospel, you've got the I am discourses, like, you know, when I am the bread of life, I am the way, the truth of the life, I am the good shepherd. All these are taking that name that God used for himself to Moses at the burning bush. And this is a direct claim of Jesus to be God himself. And immediately... John tells us that they tried to stone him, but he slipped away from them. Now, why did they try to stone him? And they were so incensed that now they were prepared to go against what the Roman law said. Now they were prepared to risk the anger of Rome, and they, they spontaneously started to stone him, but Jesus slipped away. But why stone him? For blasphemy. What blasphemy? because he claimed to be God. And when you get these, you know, sort of people often wearing dog collars, saying that Jesus never claimed to be God, he only claimed to be the Son of God, they simply do not know what they were talking about. The claim to be the Son of God to the Jewish mind was the claim to be God. They're, they're stoning him for blasphemy because he said 
he was God. They knew full well that that's what Jesus was claiming. Now, of course, it wasn't blasphemy. It's only blasphemy if you claim to be God and you're not. Jesus claimed to be God and he was God. Therefore, it wasn't blasphemy. He was innocent. But quite blatantly, Jesus saying that he was God become man. Right, then we, we move into uh, chapter 9 and we have the story of a, a man born blind and he was actually born blind from birth. Now this according to the tradition of the elders or the teaching of the Pharisees, Pharisaic Judaism, call it what you like. This was one of the so-called messianic signs. Uh, because such a healing had never been known, therefore they said that Messiah only Messiah can heal someone who's been born blind. Not someone who's become blind in later life, but someone who's born blind, alright? Now then, a question arises when Jesus is confronted with this bloke, and uh, as to why, why is he blind? Is it because he sinned, or because his parents sinned? Now that's a really odd thing to say. Not so much is it because his parents sinned, but here's a man born blind, and the people are saying to Jesus, is it perhaps because he sinned? Well, hang on a sec, he was born blind, how could he have sinned? <laughs> Pharisaic Judaism taught that the fetus could sin. Right, silly, Jesus didn't confirm it. That's just one of the daft little teachings that Pharisaic Judaism had at the time. And uh, that's why they said, was it that his parents sinned or that he did? Because they're, they're saying perhaps he sinned as a fetus. Um, now, Jesus... Jesus' answer to that, he says, no, it's not because anybody sinned. He says he's like this in order to display the work of God. And then, again, we've already seen it in chapter 8, but now Jesus repeats one of those things that he was wont to say often, and again he says, I am the light of the world. Now, what's the point of that? Well, because if you're blind, you're in darkness. And Jesus saying, no, I'm the light of the world. I created light. This is not a problem. Someone whose brain and eyes do not respond to light, this is not a problem because I created light. So therefore Jesus was declaring that there was going to be a kind of um, a healing. Now what he did is he spat on the ground and he mixed his spittle with the mud and he made this little paste and then he put it on the man's eyes. Now in there are numerous breakings of the tradition of the elders. This was a Sabbath and not only should he have not done it on a Sabbath, according to the, you know, to the tradition of the elders, you shouldn't put spittle on someone's eyes and all these silly little rules. So not only does Jesus heal this man, on the one day of the week where, according to the tradition of the elders, you shouldn't have done the Sabbath, but he actually, some people he laid hands on, other people he just commanded healing. This, he actually heals the bloke deliberately in a way that goes against the tradition of the elders. All right. And uh, so he heals this bloke, all right, in a, a forbidden way, and then he, he, he says to, um, you know, to sort of like the bloke to go and, and, and wash in the pool of Siloam, which was kind of injury, it was part of Jerusalem's waterway system, it was a fairly well-known pool. And uh, so, so the bloke goes off to the pool of Siloam, wipes the mud off his eyes, and, and he's healed. Now then, as a result of this man being born blind, being healed, other people take him off to the Pharisees, who were hopping mad. I mean, they weren't, they weren't pleased for the guy. They were mad because a healing had taken place on the Sabbath, all right? And uh, they told him that whoever had healed him couldn't be from God uh, because he was a Sabbath breaker. So they're saying, whoever healed you, this can't be of God because 
he's broken one of our laws. Again, not the law, not the Ten Commandments. This this wasn't Jesus going against the Old Testament in any way at all. This was going against the tradition of the elders, the teachings that the Pharisees adhered to at the time. And um, you know, so they said to this bloke, "Oh well, you've been healed, but you shouldn't have been. And whoever did it isn't of God because he's broken our law." And uh, but 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 the bloke disagreed with them and they said well I disagree with you I mean he's got to be a prophet isn't he you know to have done this at least so then what the Pharisees do they, they summon um, his parents to to verify they actually had been blind so they, they start to investigate a bit and um, but but the parents were afraid of the Pharisees because um, it had already been laid down by the Pharisees that, that anyone who, who believed in Jesus was going to be expelled from the synagogue and uh, so so the, the man's parents were a bit frightened but they verified that their son was blind all right so but they wouldn't comment further and they just said to the pharisees look okay he's blind but he was blind but he's of age go and ask him all right so i we don't want to get involved in this you ask him and uh, so the man who's been healed is a uh, summoned back to the pharisees all right so he, he goes back to them and they say Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Now, th this is a really weird thing. They're saying, praise the Lord, Jesus is a sinner. I mean, what an odd thing to say. But then, the, these guys are a bit warped and twisted. If you're trying to maintain the appearance that you love God when you don't really, you end up saying all sorts of, doing all sorts of weird things, you see. And, uh, but the, 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 the man who'd been healed said, look, I, I don't know about that. All I know is that I was blind, but now I see. And then the Pharisees asked him to go over the story again. You know, some people, they think, if you, if, if you, go, you, know, if you look at a fact enough, you can change it. Well, you can't. Facts are stubborn things. They don't go away. And what the man who's been healed says now, he gets a bit sarcastic, and he says, oh, you know, do you want to be Jesus' disciples as well then? Because he's getting a bit fed up with the Pharisees, so he starts to get a bit sarky now, and um, you know. So I mean, they're they're starting to fall out. Um, well, I just want to read um, from from verse twenty-eight, and uh, then then they hurled insults at him and said, "You are this fellow's disciple." So they're losing their call cool now. The man who's been healed has been sarcastic to them. So they start hurling insults at him. I mean, they're yelling and screaming at him now. I mean, they're just losing it completely. They say, you're this fellow's disciple, this fellow being Jesus. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Now listen to this. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. See, messianic miracle. Not just the run-of-the-mill miracle. Can you see? This bloke is saying nothing like this has ever happened before. He says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this, the Pharisees replied. And this brings out what caring, loving elders and leaders of God's people they were to this they replied brackets lovingly you were steeped in sin at birth how dare you lecture us and they threw him out I mean the leaders of God's people wow it's absolutely 
incredible, isn't it? And uh, so then afterwards, Jesus finds the healed man because he's never actually, although he can see now, he's never seen Jesus because Jesus sent him away still blind and he got his sight back when he washed in the pool. And uh, so Jesus goes and finds him out and, uh, and, and the man who's been healed worships him as the son of man. And, uh, and, and of course, in Daniel, Old Testament, son of man was a messianic designation. And, and Jesus calls himself the son of man. And Jews knew that the Messiah was the son of man and was divine and hence they worship him. So they knew that Messiah was so much more than just a prophet, that he was indeed God become man. And then just, just finish off the, uh, this particular chapter, read from verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this, and says, What are we blind to? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. And the problem with the Pharisees wasn't that they were sinners, because all men are. It was, and do you remember what we saw last time of Nathaniel? Jesus said in him, an Israelite in whom is no guile, not deceitful, honest. The trouble with the Pharisees was that not that they were sinners, but that they were deceitful. They were self-righteous. They deceived themselves again and again and again. They refused to acknowledge even the possibility that they might be sinful and that they might be wrong. Right, chapter 10. And we now have Jesus' teaching on I am the good shepherd and uh, I am the door of the sheep. And, um, and, and of course one of the Old Testament prophetic themes would be that, that, that one day, you know, sort of like God would be the shepherd of his own people and that he, he, he would you know call his own sheep and that they would know know his voice and, and it's like Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd and um, you know and Jesus said he says that I call my sheep by name and, and my sheep know my voice and he says whoever enters through me the door of the sheep will be saved and of course when we did the salvation series we saw didn't we that when Jesus died he removed the barrier of sin so that what stands between men and women and God now isn't their sinfulness because God dealt with that Jesus dealt with that on the cross the sin barrier is gone Jesus stands there in the sin barriers place as a door and if people will walk through him they'll be saved if they don't they won't if they reject him they won't be saved but where the sin barrier once was Jesus stands and he is the open door the door of the sheep and anyone who believes in him will be saved and uh, and he said I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly and then he teaches that in contrast to this I mean him being the good shepherd that the thief comes to kill steal and destroy well I mean that's Satan but also false shepherds you know, sort of like, you know, sort of people who they're not leading others in, in genuine truth. They're just religious people, self-righteous people in it for what they can get out of it. But Jesus says that the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep because that's what Jesus came to do, to die for us. But he says in contrast, the hireling, i.e. the shepherd who doesn't own the sheep, just deserts the sheep in the face of danger. 
you know, because of the sheep don't really mean anything to him. But what Jesus is saying, because of my love for you, I, I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm not in this selfishly. I'm not in this just because I want to be a leader or I want to be, you know, someone special. I'm here because I actually love you. Whereas the religious leaders that we're seeing again and again and again through the Gospels, they were just in it for what they could get out of it. They didn't love the people in any way at all. And then again Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And he says that he knows his sheep and his sheep know him just as, as he knew the Father and the Father knew him. So the relationship that he has with his Father is the relationship that believers can have with him. And he says again that he would lay down his life for the sheep. That would be how we would know that he was the good shepherd. And uh, he, he said that he had other sheep, not of this fold, um, an oblique reference there to the Gentiles because salvation wasn't just for the Jews and of course once once the church got going it became a largely Gentile affair and as uh, so he says I've got other sheep not of this fold so he says I'm going to bring the Gentiles in as well but he said there's going to be one shepherd and one flock and of course there are shades there of both Ezekiel one strain of his teaching and also Zechariah in the Old Testament as well the idea that God would bring Jew and Gentile together and make of them one people under God and that God himself would be their shepherd. And, uh, and then Jesus says that he lays his life down of his own free will and he does this simply because the Father has commanded him to. And he said no one is taking his life from him. Um, he had authority to lay it down and, and he had authority to take it up again. And what Jesus is saying, don't get it wrong, he says, Satan's not going to kill me. Rome isn't going to kill me. The Jewish nation isn't going to kill me. I am freely going to lay down my life and I'm going to arrange it all. And then he says, and not only am I going to arrange it all, he says, but I have power to take it back again. And he says, and after I've arranged it all to die, then I'm going to arrange it so I can be resurrected from the dead as well. Jesus in utter and complete control. Now in response to this, the people listening, some of them said that he was mad, others said that he was demonised. But yet others raised the question, yeah, but hang on, if he's mad or if he's demonised, how could he heal the man who had been born blind? You see? So, you know, there's the responses. Some believe some don't. Now we have uh, the Feast of Dedication arriving, which was uh, one of the feasts in Jerusalem. And this particular one, it commemorated when Judas Maccabeus commemorated the temple in uh, 165 BC, after Antiochus Epiphanes had kind of like invaded Jerusalem and, and sort of like destroyed it. And you'll remember we saw this in our talk between the Testaments, didn't we? How the Maccabee family were raised up and delivered Jerusalem from Antiochus Epiphanes. And having set the nation free, there was, you know, sort of like a dedication of, of the temple, and that was in 165 BC. And that led to a festival that they had every year to, um, to commemorate it. And uh, Jesus is, is in the temple area during this festival. And uh, the, the, the people ask him to tell them once and for all whether or not he was the Christ. 
Now, Jesus' reply is that he'd been consistently telling him, telling them, but they didn't believe him. And Jesus said, I've been telling you that I'm the Christ, but you don't believe me. And, uh, and he said that even, even though you don't believe, he says, look, my miracles prove it. So this is daft. It's like other times when Jesus has worked loads of miracles, and then people say, give us a sign. And you think, well, this is daft. So they say, come on, tell us. Out with it, Jesus. Are you really Messiah? And Jesus is saying, how many times do you want me to tell you? I am the Messiah. And, um, but he says that they don't believe him because they're not his sheep. And again, he says that his sheep know his voice, they follow him, and that uh, they have eternal life. And he says, more than that, his sheep can never perish. He will never lose any of his sheep. And he says that no one can pluck you from the palm of my hand. And he says, the reason that no one can take my sheep away from me is because the Father has given them to me. And he says, the Father is greater than all. And he said, and no one can pluck them out of his hands either. So what Jesus is saying, look, my people, they're in the palm of my hand, and no one can get them out of the palm of my hand. And he says, you know, sort of like, I'm, I'm more powerful than anyone, and my father is more powerful still. Remember at school, my dad's bigger than your dad. My dad could beat your dad up any day. It's that sort of thing. Now the point is, if no one is as strong as God, Therefore, no one can ever pluck us out of his hand. That's what Jesus is saying. And there is the absolute security. If we're saved, if, if we believe on Jesus, then nothing can ever cause us to lose that salvation. And then Jesus said, I and the Father are one. To which point they pick up stones to stone him. Because again, he's claimed to be divine. And uh, Jesus quotes from Psalm 82, verse 6. And it's a psalm where human leaders, like kings and rulers, are referred to as gods, with a little g. The point being that they have authority over their nation, in the way that God has authority over the universe. To that extent, they are little gods, all right. And of course, the point is that we are created in the image of God. And what Jesus is saying He's saying fundamentally, why should you have a problem with the idea of God becoming a man when you know full well that you were created in the image of God? If you think about it, the idea of God becoming part of his creation and becoming a human being is so logical. It's so sensible. It's so straightforward. Jesus is saying, in the light of your Old Testament teaching, there is no reason at all for any Jew to have had a problem with the concept of God becoming a man. It was there in the Old Testament scriptures. And, um, and then he reiterated again that his miracles spoke for him and couldn't be, you know, denied. Say, so if you don't believe my words, look at the works I do, the miracles that I quote. And then he says, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And again, they tried to seize him, but John says he escaped their grasp. And at that point, Jesus now goes across the Jordan, and now he goes to spend some time um, in Perea, like where the Transjordan tribes were. So he went over there. That was when John the Baptist. We know where John the Baptist had done a lot of uh, his his work. And, um, and many in Perea came to believe in him 
and uh, they said that um, you know that obviously everything that John the Baptist has said about Jesus was 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 true. Right now, in chapter eleven, uh, we uh, meet Mary and Martha of Bethany. Now we met them in Luke chapter ten, um, and they had a, br- a brother called Lazarus, and Lazarus falls ill. Now they send word to Jesus over in Perea and um, and said, you know, he's ill, can you come and, and help? And Jesus' response to the messengers was that the illness wouldn't end in death and he stayed in Perea for two more days. Um, after two days he said to the disciples that they'd go back to Judea now um, and the disciples kind of said, well look, is that wise given that the Jews want to stone you, Jesus, isn't it best to stay here? But Jesus said, no, we're going to go back um, to, um, to help out Mary and Martha. And Jesus tells the disciples that Lazarus has fallen asleep, unquote, i.e. dead. But the disciples think he just means that he's asleep, like snoozing, having a doze. But Jesus tells them plainly that he meant, no, he's dead. But Jesus had just said, this illness isn't going to end in death, saying to disciples, scratching their heads. Now Thomas, and this is doubting Thomas, Thomas the positive, says, let us go and die with him. So here's our chance, let's go and die with him. Um, and also John tells us that John was called Didymus. All right, that, that, that was his other name, Thomas and Didymus, which always reminds you of the Didymen. We are the Didymen. So it takes a couple of days to get to Mary and Martha's so Lazarus has now been dead for four days all right and uh, Martha goes out to meet Jesus and tells him uh, and, and Jesus says to her no look Lazarus will rise again um, and Martha thinks he's just referring to the general resurrection of, of all people in in the last day but of course Jesus isn't and Jesus says to her, and here comes one of the other I am's, I am the resurrection and the life. Because Jesus has the power of life. Why? Because he created the universe. And he also he says, Martha, do you believe? And she confesses him as the Messiah, the Son of God who was to come into the world. So, I mean, we know that Martha is a believer, or certainly has become one now. Um, and she dashes back, all right, back to the village and brings Mary out now. And, um, and Mary repeats what Martha had earlier said and, and she says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. They said, Lord, if, if you'd been here, you could have prevented this. Now, John tells us that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And in the Greek, that, that phrase, deeply moved, um, it means snorting with anger and, and, and it's a, a phrase that was used of horses before they go into battle what you've got here is that Jesus is angry at the obscenity of death that's the point because death is the result of sin we were never meant to die and, and Jesus came to defeat death and then immediately after that in verse 35 we have the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, which has so tragically become a statement of blasphemy, hasn't it? It's become a profanity. But this is Jesus weeping 
because of his compassion for people who are subject to death and his anger that death has claimed somebody. And, uh, and then other people who are around, they start murmuring and they say, well, he opened the eyes of a man who was born blind. How come he couldn't stop Lazarus dying? Well, some people are never happy, are they? Then John tells us again that Jesus was deeply moved, literally that he snorted with anger. And Jesus approached the tomb and, and, and it was a cave and it had a stone across it. And, um, and Jesus said, he said, take the stone away. And Martha said that it would smell, which under normal circumstances it would. Incidentally, the point about Jesus left it four days after Lazarus died, the, te the tradition of the elders, the teaching of the Pharisees, it wasn't biblical, but they taught that someone's spirit could hover over the dead body for three days and there was that chance for them to, you know, sort of like come back to life. So leaving it the fourth day, Jesus was leaving all, all doubt this bloke was dead. <laughs> right, okay. And, um, and Martha says, no, if we move the stone, it'll be smelly. And Jesus reminded them that he said that if they believed, they would see the glory of God. Now let's actually read this bit and verse 41 and 42. And this is what we've got. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus prays out loud, and uh, you know, and it's for the benefit of, of of those who, who, you know, sort of like you know, are hearing, so that they might know that God has really sent him. And um, and then what happens is that Jesus cries out. He says, "Lazarus, come out." And Lazarus comes out. He's in the grave clothes. He'd have waddled out like a penguin. But out he comes. And then Jesus said to them, remove the grave clothes and let him go. And of course, always, you'll remember, also, you'll remember when we were doing the Synoptic Gospels, that after the point when the Pharisees had blasphemed the Holy Spirit and, you know, put Jesus down to doing what he was doing, by the power of the devil. You'll remember that Jesus said that the only sign that you're going to get now is the sign of Jonah, and Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and it was going to be the sign of being raised from the dead. Now, Jairus's daughter was raised from the dead, and the widow of Nain's son was raised from the dead by Jesus, but that was before the blasphemy against uh, the Holy Spirit. But here, this is the major sign that Jesus is now giving Israel that he is who he claims to be. He is giving them the sign of Jonah, he's raising someone from the dead. And of course it's going to, you know, to, to eventually end up in him being raised from the dead himself. And so he, he, he tells the people to let Lazarus go, sort of like take all the grave clothes off of him and uh, send him on his way. Now as a result of this, um, some of the people there believed in him and become Christians. Um, others went and reported him to the Pharisees. And uh, so what they did with the chief priests, they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, the kind of the governing body of the Jews. And uh, you know, we, we saw last time that Nicodemus was on this particular body. 
and uh, so they get together and this 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 meeting notes that uh, because of all the miracles that he's working that um eventually everyone would believe in Jesus and the Romans would react and destroy the nation so this was the point of the meeting they're saying look if we don't do something if Jesus keeps working all these miracles we're going to have a mass believing on him as it were and as a result of that the Romans are going to destroy us now just note the irony is that because Israel didn't believe in Jesus God's judgment on them was that the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. You see the irony of it. They actually brought about the thing that they were trying to avoid. Because, of course, they were purely thinking politically, not spiritually. And um, Caiaphas was the acting high priest, and it was his father-in-law, Annas, who should have actually been the high priest, but the Romans had deposed him. We saw that last time, didn't we? Um, and, and Caiaphas said that it was better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. Now, jo John tells us, he interrupts the narrative there, and he says that this was ironic as well, because it was God overruling him and actually making this into a prophecy. I mean, Caiaphas meant it politically. Caiaphas was merely looking at political expediency. He's saying, we've got to kill Jesus, because if not, we're all going to die. But of course, the point was, Jesus, it's better for one man to die and to save the nation. It was literally Jesus dying that brought the possibility of salvation to the world. And so the point is, Caiaphas meant it one way, political expediency, but this was actually the Holy Spirit prophesying through him, but meaning it a completely different way spiritually. And so at this point, the Sanhedrin officially pass a motion that now they are going to find a way to get Jesus killed. So now it's official. Now at this point, Jesus moves up north a little bit to Ephraim. Not, not too far up, but just a little bit. He's not moving around too much publicly. Um, the Passover is approaching, and this is literally his last week on earth, is now fast looming. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the crowds are buzzing, and the word is, will Jesus turn up at the Passover? We saw last time that when he turned up to Passover and caused the right old stir, didn't he? And uh, the Pharisees by now have officially ordered that Jesus be arrested. And again, do you remember last time they ordered that Jesus was arrested, but when the palace guards went to get him, they didn't dare arrest him. But, uh, but now the Pharisees are saying, no, he's going to be arrested. And uh, they, they send out word that anyone who sees Jesus, anyone who knows where he is at any point, are to report it to us so we can arrange to have him arrested. Now, um, Chapter 12, and we now move into the last week of Jesus' life, all right? So this is six days before the Passover, and uh, Jesus is back in Bethany, and uh, he's back with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and he stays at their place uh, for the last week. And uh, they, they give a dinner in Jesus' honour. Now, from Matthew and Mark's Gospel, we know that although... Uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus arranged the meal, it was actually held 
at the house of Simon the leper. And um, Martha served, did all the serving the food, but Mary took a, a, a pint of pure nard, which was uh, an expensive perfume extracted from the oil of the, the nard plant, um, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair. Now, don't, don't confuse that with a similar event that happened in Luke 7, uh, when another woman did something similar with a, a jar of perfume and her tear bottle. That was a different occasion, all right. Um, different person, different occasion. But now Mary has done this. And uh, Judas objects to what she's done on the basis that this, this perfume uh, could have been sold and given to the poor. Its value was actually a year's wages. So it was a very expensive perfume. Um, and Matthew and Mark inform us that the other disciples all joined in. And they're all piling in on her that she shouldn't have done this. It would have been far better to have you know, sold it and given the money to the poor than to waste it by pouring it on Jesus' feet. Um, now, at this point, John tells us that Judas's motive was that he was a thief. And even though he was the treasurer of the group, he was actually a thief. And Judas was all the time taking money from the common purse. Um, so that was his motive for it. The, you know, the other disciples didn't know he was a thief. Uh, not at that point. But Jesus tells them all to leave Mary alone and that she was anointing him for his burial. And he says, look, you'll always have the poor with you. He says, you can sell what you've got and give that to the poor anytime, but you won't always have me with them. So Jesus kind of reprioritizes their thinking there. Um, then, then lots of Jews start to turn up and a crowd gathers at this meal. Um, and they turn up to see Lazarus because they know that he's been raised again from the dead. So let's go and have a gulp, all right? Um, and there, there are those who believe in Jesus as a result. You know, they see a man who's actually been raised from the dead. Um, now, the chief priests hear that this is happening, that there are crowds going to see Lazarus who've been raised from the dead. So they pass another motion. And the motion they now pass is they've already decided they're going to kill Jesus, but they said, we'll kill Lazarus as well. They will teach Jesus to raise him from the dead. We'll kill him again. Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable. But that's, that's what they decide to do. Yeah, well, we're not just going to kill Jesus now. We're going to kill Lazarus as well. Um, the next day, uh, you, you have the, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You know, the crowd take the palm branches uh, from the Synoptic Gospels. We know that they spread their cloaks down um, as well. Um, and they say, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they're quoting from Psalm 118. Um, Hosanna means save. That's what the word actually means in the Hebrew. But it, it became an expression of praise. So rather than save us, it, it kind of meant a kind of praise the Lord sort of thing. And, and of course, with them saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, um, ironically, you'll you're remember in Matthew 23 and Luke 13 that uh, this was what Jesus said to Jerusalem, he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, you know, we know that the second coming will be when Israel prays for it. And it's all very well for them saying, this now, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, but of course the point is they're going to betray him. And uh, they're saying it at the wrong time. And it's when Israel says it and means it that, that, that we'll have the second coming. 
and you know and they're saying blessed is the king of israel they're really going for it they're really kind of saying oh jesus we're all for you it's totally fickle it's totally fickle this same crowd turn on him a couple of days later and also jesus as he comes in for this triumphal entry he's riding on donkey and he's fulfilling the prophecies of zechariah uh chapter nine and and of course the the point is when a king went to a nation if he wanted to declare terms of peace he went on a donkey but if he wanted to declare war he came on a white horse now here G the first coming jesus is riding on a donkey at the second coming he comes on a white horse to declare war on the unbelieving world sort of chat that in so that's interesting um and john at this point now says that all this like we, we only understood it later on so obviously he's writing it down in his gospel be just as you know we we only kind of it was only after jesus was glorified it was only after jesus had died and was raised again from the dead and ascended into heaven and the holy spirit was poured out on us he says then we we, we started to, to really understand what it all meant and and he says that the crowds keep spreading the word about jesus and and the pharisees start to say to each other they say this is getting us nowhere look the whole world has gone after him so it's their kind of the pharisees are almost thinking we not doesn't matter what we do people keep responding to jesus but of course they did the pharisees were up against god himself although they were too stubborn to actually admit it right now john tells us that some greeks turn up now and they approach philip and they say we want to see jesus they say take us to him we want to see jesus and so philip tells andrew and together they all go to jesus and um actually going to read this section and um right it's uh chapter 12 and we'll start reading from verse 23 Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, i.e. his death on the cross. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Now, obviously, this, this kind of, you know, the idea is a single grain falls into the ground and dies, and it produces a harvest. And uh, so, obviously, it's talking about Jesus' physical death. But the point is, this, this must be the story of our lives as disciples. It's only as we die to ourselves that we can produce the harvest of righteousness um, of the life of of Jesus within us and uh, you know and of course Jesus is saying that if we follow him he won't just honor us in this life but but we'll actually end up with him in heaven and he says now my heart is troubled what shall I say father save me from this hour no, it was this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, there are shades of Gethsemane here. Jesus, I mean, he doesn't want to go to the cross. Of course he doesn't want to, but he's willing to. He fears the cross. Of course he does, but he's willing to do it. 
and um, and then it says, um, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it, some said it thundered, others said a voice had spoken to him. And then uh, Jesus said, look, it's uh, for your benefit that this voice came to help you believe in me. And, uh, and he says, now is the time for judgment on this world now the prince of this world will be driven out because of course when jesus died on the cross that was actually satan's defeat and he says but i when i am lifted up from the earth i crucified he said i will draw all men to myself not saying that everyone's going to be safe but all men from every nation because he's talking to greeks some greeks have come to him so men of every nation will um you know to be uh you know sort of come and be saved and uh and of course judgment on this world because as the lamb of god he was dying to take away the sin of the world he was coming to to deal with the sin problem of the world and um and of course again by saying lifted up john says in saying that he indicated you know how he was going to die and then in verse 34 the crowd spoke up, we've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now what they're saying is, look, our teaching has been in the Old Testament that Messiah is going to be there forever. He's eternal. So they're saying, so how can you say you're Messiah and yet you're going to die? They couldn't tie the two things up. But of course what they weren't counting on was that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead. See, they were still seeing, but if Jesus dies, that's it, he's dead and gone. But Messiah abides forever. And of course Jesus is saying, yep, yeah, I'm going to be raised from the dead. See, they're, they're still not falling in. So that, that, that bit didn't make sense to them. Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left them and hid himself from them. And what he's saying, look, at the moment I'm still with you, it's light. Believe in me now. He says, because when I'm gone and it's dark, it will be harder for you. And then John comments that the Jews continued in their unbelief. And, um, and, and, and he quotes from Isaiah 53 and chapter 6 prophecies and says that this is fulfilling prophecies that said that they won't believe in Messiah when he comes and um, and then John said Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus's glory and spoke about him so here John is quoting Isaiah's prophecy you remember Isaiah he said I saw the king high and lifted up and his train fills the temple and here John said Isaiah said that because he saw Jesus Jesus was the king that Isaiah saw, high and lifted up in his train for the temple, because Jesus is God. And, um, and then he tells us that some of the Jewish leaders started to believe in Jesus, but they wouldn't admit to it, because if they had have done, they'd have been put out of the synagogue. So what happens now is that other leaders in Israel believe on Jesus but they keep shtum. They become believers but they won't come out with it because they'd have been persecuted. 
and, uh, and John said they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God and that's, that's something always for us to take to heart isn't it it's so easy even as disciples you realise that the praise of man actually means more to us than the praise of God and that's something we always uh, need to be overcoming and then Jesus goes on to do quite a lot of teaching and I'll, I'll just condense it and and he, he covers that if, 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 if anyone believes in him they're believing in the Father because he was the one who revealed the Father um, again he teaches that he's the light of the world so there's no excuse for anyone to remain in darkness um, he makes it clear that he didn't come in the world into the world to judge the world but to save the world he will come back on the white horse to judge the world but his first coming was on a donkey so to speak it wasn't to judge it was to save and he says that it's his words that will condemn those who reject him in the last day because they don't have to reject him and uh, and he says that he speaks only what the father commands him to say and he says that the father's command leads to eternal life and so again anyone who believes on him would be saved right now we come to chapter 13 and uh, this this will be the last chapter that we do tonight and um and we we hit the last supper now um and john john picks up just after they finished eating so they finished the passover meal itself and the synoptic gospels deal with that bit and uh, and john says as well that this is just just after the devil had prompted Judas to betray Jesus so Judas is sitting there ready to act ready to actually go and uh, and to have Jesus arrested and to betray him and so we come in at chapter 13 this is after Jesus has instituted the church love feast so they finish the meal and the do this in remembrance of me has been done all right and uh, so now where we're given information about what happened at the Last Supper that the Synoptic Gospels don't give us. And uh, John, John tells us, he says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So again, just that reminder that the whole time everything was complete in Jesus' control. He was arranging it all. He was arranging his death and he was going to arrange the fact that he was going to be raised again from the dead as well. In complete control. Jesus is not here the innocent victim of man's willfulness. Behind everything that is going on is the very plan that he himself is putting into action. And of course it's all to win our salvation. Right, so what he does, they've got up from dinner, they've finished that bit, and Jesus has done the do this in remembrance of me and said about the, you know, the love feast for the church. And he now washes the disciples' feet. So he lines them all up, and of course this is what the servant did. He lines them all up and he washes their feet. And uh, he gets to Peter, and Peter says, No, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. 
I mean, Peter can't bring himself to have Jesus wash his feet. And, and of course, what Jesus is showing here is servanthood. This is where he had to serve each other and serve the world. And Jesus says to Peter, he says, look, unless you let me wash you, i.e. your feet, you have no part of me. To which Peter says, all right, then wash me all over, Lord. Give me a bath. This, this is Peter from one extreme to the next. Jesus says, I'm going to wash your feet, Peter. Peter says, no, I can't. And Jesus said, no, I've got to wash your feet or you have no part in me. Oh, well, give me a bath then. And Jesus said, no, look, there's no need for that. He says, because look, you're all clean, all right? And you don't need a bath, you just need your feet to be washed. And of course, the picture that we've got here is that because we're believers, we're justified by faith. We're, we're declared righteous before God. We have had our bath, all right? Baptism was our bath, so to speak, all right? But the point is, daily, as we walk in the world, we get contaminated with sin. And of course, in the ancient world, let's say you were going, going to a dinner party or going somewhere posh, you have a bath and that, and you spruce yourself up, and you're all pucker. You walk there in sandals. Your feet get dirty. And by the time you get there, you're clean, but your feet are dirty. You've picked up muck from the walk, and that's when the servant would wash the feet. And so the picture here is not of kind of like needing a bath because Peter, what Jesus is saying, look, Peter, you are clean. You don't need a bath. You believe in me. You're justified. You've been made righteous. But you still get contaminated with sinfulness as you walk in the world day by day. So what this is talking about is the daily cleansing of our sanctification, of the Lord making us holy, confession of sin daily and um, but it's interesting that Jesus did say but one of you is not clean and of course referring there to Judas because Judas wasn't a believer Jesus Judas never got born again Judas never believed on Jesus so as to become a disciple he was a thief <coughs> he never had that heart change and Jesus <coughs> emphasizes to them that this foot washing um, signifies servanthood and what he says to them that as their lord and as their master he had washed their feet <coughs> and therefore they must do it as well because no servant is greater than his master so jesus is saying i as your master am doing this i'm greater than you so you must do it as well and of course the point being that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And he's saying, if you're to be my disciples, then you must do it as well. And of course nothing symbolised servanthood in the ancient world more than foot washing. And as a kind of um, addendum to that, remember, I mean here we have a love feast. We don't have a bread and wine service, do we? We have a love feast. And remember that when Jesus at the Last Supper with the bread and the wine said, do this in remembrance of me, if he's saying that that is, is an act to be literally and ritually done rather than merely symbolising the meal, then the point is it would be irrational to do that and not to wash each other's feet. 
So the point is, at the same meal, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, referring to the bread and the wine. And he said, wash each other's feet. Now, obviously, in regards to the love feast, I maintain that the bread and the wine was merely the symbol of the meal. It was the meal that Jesus was saying, do this in remembrance of me. The bread and the wine was simply the symbol of the meal. Not to be done literally, that you've got to have bread and you've got to have wine and you've got to have a little service bit. Now, in exactly the same way, I'm maintaining that Jesus, when he said, wash each other's feet, he wasn't meaning for the church to literally wash each other's feet. It was the symbol of the servanthood that we're to be into. So I suppose that all I would say is that it's completely inconsistent for churches who have communion services with bread and wine. It is completely inconsistent if they say that that's to be done literally and then they don't wash each other's feet. You know, so I'm, I'm saying they're both symbolic, all right? It's as simple as that. Anyway, Jesus then says, having explained to them the foot washing and serving each other, he then says to them, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And of course, that is kind of, you know, brings to mind very much the letter of James, doesn't it? When James says, don't be hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. And then let's read the rest of this chapter, just in, um, in ending this. And we'll start from uh, verse 18. And Jesus says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now, this is obviously Jesus talking about Judas. Judas wasn't chosen. Judas wasn't a disciple. Jesus knew that Judas was not born again. And this thing about um, he who shares my bread has lifted up my heel against me, that was a fulfilment of Psalm 41 verse 9. So here Jesus is predicting that one of his disciples is going to betray him. And... <coughs> they debate amongst themselves who it was going to be. Let's keep reading you. He says, I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. <clears throat> whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And we take it because he wasn't named. That is John. This is actually the writer, the disciple Jesus loved. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Because they want to know who's going to betray Jesus. Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. 
As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And this actually, when a host did this, this was a sign of honour. Jesus was the host. And, and in the ancient world, if you dipped something in something, gave it to someone, you were actually giving them a specially honoured place. And Jesus actually gives Judas a sign of honour, knowing that Judas was going to go out and betray him, and that Satan was about to enter him. And of course it's almost like a last, a last pleading with Judas not to do it. So the whole time Jesus was extending his hand to Judas. Judas, of course, said no. And, um, and he says, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Now the other disciples, they're still baffled. They, they're not falling in that Judas is the one who's going to betray. They think that when Jesus says to him, look, go, go and do what you've got to do, they're thinking, oh, well, perhaps Jesus had a prior arrangement with Judas to go and buy food or give something to the poor or something like that. So they still don't at this point, um, you know, sort of like fall in um, with the thing that Judas was going to uh, betray him. But of course, incredible symbolism there. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. And, and that sums up Judas. He was the night. And... Um, and then Jesus carries on teaching and, and he says that the Son of Man is going to be glorified. Obviously talking about the fact he was going to die and that God will be glorified in him. And he tells them that he's only going to be with them a short time um, and that they wouldn't be able to accompany him where he was going. Because of course everywhere he'd gone the last three and a half years they went with him. And now Jesus, he says, but I'm, I'm going. I won't be with you much longer, but I'm going somewhere and you can't come with me. And of course, what he was meaning is that obviously he was going to have th th three days and three nights down in paradise, obviously with a quick zapping over to Tartarus, which we'll see in more detail when we come to the letters of Peter. And, um, but we'll read verses 34 and 35. And this is so important, almost the heart of John's Gospel really. A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And, and, and that kind of, that is it. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts, loving each other and loving people as Jesus loves us. And then this, this, this next bit is kind of, well, it's kind of sweet, but it's, it's kind of bittersweet as well. Because uh, Peter asked, well, Jesus replied, where I'm going, you can't follow, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Because Peter honestly so wanted to be going anywhere that Jesus was going. And Peter said, Lord, I will die for you. Now, obviously, he didn't realise 
that he didn't have it in him. He wanted to have it in him, but he didn't. And this is when Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. So Peter has said, Lord, I'm going to come with you. I'll die for you. And Jesus says, Peter, quite to the contrary, not only will you not die for me, but you're actually going to deny me three times. And uh, that is going to be before tomorrow morning comes. And uh, for the fulfilment of that prophecy and uh, for the rest of John's Gospel, we'll uh, return to it next time.